Turn in your Bible to the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament. It is uh, after Judges, and you're gonna, you've got uh, the book of Joshua and Chronicles, and Judges and Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, sometimes I look in the wrong place for Nehemiah. It's a small book, and it's actually located right where it's supposed to be. Let me go ahead and put this forward to you now. Um, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, they used to go together. Um, the, historically, they were the same book. And uh, it, was, it was only really in the last few hundred years that those books were divided into two books because they were telling the same story, but they were telling that story from a little bit different perspective. So they were split. Um, again, but they feed off of one another, and you'll see how much they do. Uh, I didn't really want to preach this series. Uh, when, when I heard in my heart, I felt like we were supposed to do a series on Nehemiah leading into Easter. See, you're supposed to be doing, like, really exciting stuff right now because it's almost Easter, you know. And, and I even, when I shared that with our staff around our creative table, I was like, hey, look, in March... I think we're supposed to do a series on Nehemiah. And they shared my concern. Um, they said, Nehemiah. Okay, what about Nehemiah? And so we began to deliberate what we understood. What we discovered is that Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a book that we can learn all kinds of things from. But right in the middle of chapter 2, we have the essence of what I believe God is calling a people to right now, which is in verse 18, right in the middle of that verse, which is our series scripture. The people respond to the person, not a pastor, not a priest. The people respond to the conviction of a person. How many of you know that God can use just a few to change a lot? God can use an individual to change a nation. He can use an individual to change a campus, a workplace, a city, a community. And right in the middle, we see the people's response to Nehemiah the man. The people say, let us rise up and build. Nehemiah is the story of a cupbearer in a comfortable palace that left his comfort, the comfort of his sanctuary, to provide a covering for a people that were outside of the palace. In the book of Nehemiah, we see how to deal with challenges spiritually and practically. Now, I love the powerful. I love the spiritual. I stood before my father and was accused of being a heretic for uh, leading my and leading my then girlfriend, fiance, and now wife astray because I was going to an assembly of God church instead of the church that he thought that I should attend. I love the spiritual. I love the powerful. I love the Pentecostal movement, and and I don't mean United Pentecostal. I mean the Spirit-filled movement. But I have decided that I believe the Bible is just as personal and as practical as it is powerful. In fact, I say it this way, if you only seek the power of God, then you can miss the person of the Holy Spirit. Because I have seen enough services where people fall out in altars, but they can't stand up in aisles. 
They can't show up in society. They know how to show off in the sanctuary that is conducive for them to show off in, but they don't know how to stand up in their own homes. They don't know how to stand up in the face of the enemy when they're all alone. They don't know how to share their faith in public. So don't show me that you can fall down in the front of a church if you can't stand up in front of people that aren't a part of the church. I just believe that the Word of God, it's as personal and practical as it is powerful. And we see that in this story. We see that when we don't know what to do, we can go to the one that does. We learn how to pray. We learn how to plan because we either plan or we fail. And we learn how to work God's plan out in a situation. We learn how to lead and to motivate and to inspire other people not as a priest or a pastor or even a person with prominent position, but just as an individual that God said, hey, I want to use you. We learn how to respond to personal attacks and overcome the face of manipulation and discouragement. We see all these things in this book. The truth is none of us have this thing figured out. So if you're in a place where you don't really know what you're doing, you are in a great spot. God can use you. See, if you thought you knew what you were doing, then God wouldn't be able to use you. Let's ask this question, what impresses God? What impresses God? Is it my talent? Is it my gifting? Is it my ability? Is it, is it my wealth? Is it my charisma? No, 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 what, what, what impresses God? What, what, what pleases the heart of God? When we see uh, these people that God was using, was, was God just using the greatest and the best and the most gifted and the most talented? No, no, no. Throughout Scripture, God was in a habit of using ordinary people like us like you, because most of you don't give me credit of being ordinary. But if you want to know who I really am, ask her. She knows I'm ordinary. <laughs> God is in the habit of using ordinary people to what? To impact eternity. Come on, he's in the habit of using three Hebrew boys who are not willing to bow that he can throw in the fire and reveal Jesus to an entire nation. God is in the habit of not using the hype only not using the super spiritual only he's in the habit of using ordinary things and ordinary people to impact eternity in an extraordinary way so what impresses God what impresses God I'm gonna this is gonna surprise some of you but I have never really been known for my humility I know right um especially when when my wife met me she didn't like I didn't walk by her and she look at me and go oh I bet he loves Jesus boy just look at him worship himself <laughs> I was honestly I was more known for my arrogance and my overconfidence um my my, my perceived athleticism and, and attractiveness I was I was not insecure in those areas 
okay? And so when I say what impresses God, when I, I, there's two ends of that spectrum most of the time. Most of the time, people feel either overconfident, which is really just arrogance. It's really insecurity, which is trying to be covered by arrogance because if you knew who they really were, then you wouldn't see them as you see them, but you would see them as they see themselves in the mirror and more unfortunately, the way that God sees them. But then on the other end of the spectrum is this identity crisis, this insecurity, this uh, invaluable individual, this unvalued individual who doesn't have any confidence to do or accomplish anything. So you got the two ends of the spectrum and neither one of them are right. So if I were to say, what impresses God, and, 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 I were, and you were to think, man, you know, I'm a pretty confident person. I, I'm a pretty competent person. And I know a lot of people that are. They're very competent in, uh, with their job. They're very competent and confident in their abilities. They're, very, they're, they're confident in, in their ability to provide for their family, to, 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 to provide security and finances. Um, at the workplace, in their home, whatever it may look like. But you take those same people who have this passion and this work ethic and, and this ability to provide and, and these tough individuals who can face anything and overcome anything, and you say, okay, I want you to lead, um, I want you to lead your home to Jesus. I want you to study scripture. Well, I don't know how to do that. I want you to pray for somebody. Um, I, 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 want, I want you to, to, to imitate Christ and be a living example of his love. I, I want you to be pure. Oh, I just, I don't know. Every time I get alone, man, I just start thinking these thoughts. And See, all of a sudden, you have these really confident people, perceit from, from a, a seemingly confident. And then you say, all right, now I need you to do eternal things. And all of a sudden, they become really insecure. Oh, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to pastor my family. I don't know how to study scripture. I don't know how to pray out loud when somebody, God, send somebody else. I don't know how to lead a small group. I don't know how to co-lead. I, I don't know how to host. I don't know how to serve. I, I, I just don't know what God wants from me. It doesn't matter how confident somebody is in the things of this world. All of a sudden, you give them responsibility beyond the temporary and they feel inadequate. They don't feel like they can do it. Why? Because you're right. Because if you thought you could, then God would have to look for somebody else. What impresses God? The fact that I'm available. The fact that I'm willing. Not the fact that I'm able. Hey, let's, uh, let's break it down a little bit. How many of you, just wave at me, man, you, you love history. Like history, you enjoyed that? Yeah. Okay, so that's not very many. Um, our history people come to the eight o'clock service. <laughs> I'm gonna go out on a limb and say 11.15 is not gonna wave at me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how many, let's try this one. How many of you, you love PE? Come on, somebody like, you looking to go outside and play? Okay, uh, how many of you, you'd just rather go to the dentist than hear history? Just wave at me. Couple of you, you're like, you know what? Give me a root canal. You teach that somebody else. Okay, if you love history, this is gonna be great for you. If not, just kind of hang in there for about five minutes because history, history, listen to this, is his story. And even when we don't want to learn from history, even though it just keeps repeating itself over and over again in other generations, um, even when we don't really like history, 
we can still listen and learn from his story. The Old Testament is God's story. It is the story of his people from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. And so we see God's people's history as we look into the Old Testament. In the book of 1 Samuel, the people of God, they make a grave, grave mistake. Now, it really hadn't been going very well. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it's kind of sick, okay? Like, it's just really messed up. The Bible says the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's the book of Judges. And then you move to the book of Samuel, and watch, this is what the people asked God. They actually asked Samuel, and Samuel asked God. And so the people asked Samuel, they said, give us a king. Why? Because we want to be like other nations. Do you hear the concern there? Do you hear the danger? When you start asking God for things because you see what other people have that you don't, when you start basing your prayer request on what other people have instead of what God has for you, you enter into dangerous territory in the spiritual realm. And the people of God entered into a dangerous place. And so God raised up the people's choice. They gave, they, he gave them King Saul. And King Saul started out okay, but he was arrogant. And therefore, he was disobedient. And God began to raise up a shepherd boy named David and anoint him as king at an early age. But he had to hone some stuff out of David, so he put him in a cave by himself. It's called the Cave of Adullam. It's the Cave of Loneliness. It's the Cave of, of Depression. It's the Cave of Anxiety. It's the Cave of Knowing that God has anointed you for something, but not being able to operate in what you know you're anointed for. It was that waiting period. And ultimately, David is raised up to be king. And the nation of Israel, the people of God, they're in the glory days. I mean, this is the time that Israel's making it happen. David builds a 40-mile circumference wall around the city of Jerusalem. The city is fortified. The king and the people of God, they're safe. And they are conquering, and they are winning, and they are accomplishing and David hands his kingdom down to a man named Solomon. And, and his son, Solomon, he was given this instruction to know the God of your father and serve him with an undivided heart. Say this with me. Say undivided. This is important as we move forward because Solomon did not serve God with an undivided heart. Solomon, although he had all the wisdom in the world and people would come from all over to hear the wisdom of this man... One of the people that would come would be the queen of Sheba. And Solomon began to commit the same sin that his father committed, but at a greater capacity. He began to marry and intermarry, and Solomon ended up with 700 wives and multiple concubines. And if you want to know what a concubine is, you can go to alangriffin.com. You can send him an email and ask him to explain to you from a theological perspective what a concubine is. You only get that joke if you were here for momentum when he tried to throw me under the bus to explain to you what a concubine is. So you can go to alangriffin.com and send him an email and ask him what a concubine is. What happened was Solomon began to intermarry and he began to subject God's people, the people he was leading, to the influence of other desires, ultimately other gods. Hear me. 
when one generation compromises, the next generation is condemned. Look at America. Every generation that compromised led to the condemnation of the next generation. Because for the most part, people don't fall up. And Solomon never tore down the high places. What were the high places? It was the places where people would go to be fulfilled by the things that the world had to offer. Solomon wasn't willing to tear down the entertainment industry, even though he had the capability. Solomon wasn't willing to turn that show off and make sure it didn't come into his living room. Solomon wasn't willing to change the radio station. He wasn't willing to clean out his iPod. He wasn't willing to clean out his musical library. He wasn't willing to clean out his closets, and therefore he allowed the devil a place to hide in his nation. I believe we are in a time where the church looks too much like the culture when the church was called to convert the culture. But you can't convert somebody you're acting like. You're not going to change or be used to change when you're acting just like the people that God wants to call you to change. And there is becoming right now a blurred line between morality and immorality because the church has been compromising for way too long and the compromise of one generation has led to the condemnation of the current generation. That's why we're in a series called Rise Up. Because we've got to build. I don't even want to rebuild. I don't want America like it used to be. That's not what I'm looking for. I've read the book of Revelation. I don't see democracy. I don't see the people's choice. Solomon and the kingdom of God, because Solomon did not serve God with an undivided heart, the kingdom was divided. Northern Israel, southern Judah. And they suffered the consequence of their choice that began in the consequence of the choice of the palace. Listen, the choice of the palace always becomes the choice of the people unless somebody stands up. We're currently, come on, this will preach in this series. I told you, that's why I like to listen to God and not do what I want to. We are currently in a culture where the choice of the palace will become the choice of the people if somebody doesn't stand up. Fast forward. Jeremiah prophesies to the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. To King Jehoiakim, he warns and he prophesies. And Jehoiakim ignores his prophecy. And outside of the gates of Jerusalem is a demigod, tyrannical king named Nebuchadnezzar, ready with the forces of Babylon to overthrow the nation of Judah and take them captive. Here's what God said. You want to serve idols? You want to be like the world around you? I'll give you to them. You can go to the city of all cities and the idols of all idols. Welcome, people of God, to Babylon. For 70 years, the people of God are held captive in the city of Babylon. For 70 years, God had to use a remnant 
like I believe he's raising up in this country today. God had to use a remnant to reflect his glory. One of those men, his name was Daniel. And Daniel actually lived in the palace, but he let the light of the power shine in and through him. Daniel lived such a pure life before King Nebuchadnezzar that before Nebuchadnezzar passed away, he confessed with his mouth the God of Daniel. See, God doesn't need a, a, a whole lot of people. God can take three or God can take one, but somebody has got to stand firm. Daniel stayed in the palace. He stayed in his position, and the kingdom was handed down from Nebuchadnezzar to Belteshazzar, who is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. We'll make it simple today so that I don't unintentionally curse when I'm trying to say somebody's name. We'll just call him Belshazzar. Belshazzar, Belshazzar liked big parties. He was Cajun. That's funny. Belshazzar threw, Belshazzar threw a really big party at the expense of the kingdom. You got to be careful when you throw parties at the expense of the kingdom. Belshazzar began to mock God. He, he, he was mocking God with his words. He was mocking God with, with the vessels that were actually set aside for temple worship. But I wonder how many times we throw a big party, hashtag wedding reception. How many times we throw a big party, hashtag Mardi Gras. And we take what was meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit and worship God. And we begin to pour in the things of this world. Well, somebody help me preach today. We begin to partake in ways that we would have never partaken. And when we just begin to compromise in the least amount, by the end of the night, we're living worse than we were before Jesus ever moved into our lives. And we wake up in the morning and we wonder, what happened what went wrong well you compromised and so you were condemned and you ended up in the same spot that you were before Jesus set you free because you let the standard of the big party rule over the standard of your heavenly father Belshazzar in the middle of his big party the hand of God this is a cool video to show your children <laughs> the hand of God comes in and he begins to write on the wall and the message of Belshazzar from the hand of God is, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Outside of the kingdom of Belshazzar was a king named Cyrus and the Medo-Persian army. Very historical. The Medo-Persian army attacks Babylon and within a very short, almost a day, Babylon and the people of God who are held captive there are possessed by King Cyrus and the Persians. It's under the rule of King Cyrus that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Um, and then Daniel took a nap with some kitty cats that evening under the protection of an angel of God. King Cyrus found out that he had been tricked by a man in his palace. Daniel was pulled out the next morning unscathed by what was supposed to be his destruction. And whenever you rest in the Lord, you walk out of what was supposed to be your destruction in a newfound destiny. Daniel comes up out of the pit and Cyrus looks at the man that tried to trick him and the man of God. And he says, let's throw him in there and see if he's as anointed as the one that he tricked me into throwing. 
it didn't work out so well for him. King Cyrus, it was under King Cyrus's rule that he allowed the first wave of Israelites, first wave of Israelites to return to the kingdom of Judah and specifically the city of Jerusalem. They were led, they were led by a man, depending on how you like to pronounce it, I'm Southern, so I like to say Zerubbabel. Some may say Zerubbabel. Okay, either way, Zeru is son and Babel is Babel. It literally, his, his name translates the son of Babylon. Here's what's interesting. Zerubbabel was supposed to be the king of Israel. He was the rightful heir to the throne of Jehoiakim. He was the rightful heir of the throne of God's people. But because of the sins of Solomon, not serving the Lord with an undivided heart, he is known not as the son of God or the son of Israel, but as the son of Babylon. And yet God uses a man who has lost his identity to lead the people back into their purpose because he's in a habit of using ordinary people to impact eternity in an extraordinary way. This said by a priest named Ezra. And they go back to the city and they begin to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. This third wave that we're going to read about is a wave of individuals that would actually finish the work of Zerubbabel and Ezra. See, something happened when they got to go back to the place that they wanted to be in, that instead of continuing to move forward, and I've seen this before, I've seen this a thousand times, I see people begin to come back and be part of the body of Christ and begin to pursue God and his will and pray to God to restore the past and put them back into the place that God had for them. And then God answers their prayer and he begins to restore that relationship or restore that marriage or get them back on their feet financially. And all of a sudden, instead of continuing on the path that God God have for them, they stop building and they start settling in. And instead of continuing to live for God, they end up in a worse place than they were before because they thought that their journey had a stopping place. And then they stop coming and they stop giving and they stop serving and they wonder why their children and grandchildren don't love Jesus like they wanted to because they weren't loving him the way that they were supposed to. So Zerubbabel and Ezra and all these people are back in Jerusalem and they didn't finish the work. And every day people would walk by the temple and see there's still work to be done, but nobody was doing it. Every day people would walk by the wall and say there's still work to be done, but nobody was doing it. Maybe I should email my pastor. I should probably call the church. Then they not know that there's stuff that needs to be done over here and nobody's doing it. Do they not see that there's things going on in my family that need to be fixed and need to be made right? Do they not see that there's something going on in my marriage? Do they not see that this addiction is overwhelming me? Father, I pray that you send somebody because something needs to be done and you need to send somebody to do it because I know that you have somebody to use besides just inadequate old ordinary me. And for a hundred years, people looked around and saw that things needed to be done, but nobody did it. Fast forward, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Nehemiah is writing the words of Nehemiah, the son 
of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. Verse 2, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and Nehemiah messed up. He should have said, good to see you. But instead he said, how are you doing? Guys, again, there's a difference between good to see you and how are you doing. How are you doing requires a response. Good to see you, that not a that's not a response. You just say, good to see you too. That's not an open opportunity to have a counseling session with whoever will listen. Somebody asks you how you're doing, they set themselves up, have the counseling session. Doesn't matter where it is or what's going on. They really wanted to know, or maybe they may just made the mistake. I think Nehemiah made the mistake. I don't even meant, think he, I think he meant to say, it's good to see you, Hananiah. Good to see you, my brother. Glad you're here with me in the palace, sanctuary, the worship center, where we're comfortable. How are you doing? Watch this. I asked him, how concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Basil, I mean Jerusalem, <laughs> Mamu, how's everybody doing? And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, the remnant is in great trouble and shame. Watch this. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. What they're saying is, <clears throat> there's so many things wrong and nobody's doing anything about it. So instead of picking up the sword and leading the way for the sake of the kingdom of God, we decided to come back here to the comfort of the palace. We went to Jerusalem because we thought that's what we needed because we were always looking for the fulfillment in all of the wrong places and we got what we asked for, but it's not what we thought it would be. So now we're back here again. Verse 4, Nehemiah's response, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. Let me ask you, this morning when is the last time that you wept for the sin of your city when is the last time that you wept for the impurity of the people around you when is the last time that you didn't just throw caution to the wind and assume that somebody was going to do something about it but you let the spirit of God lay his burden upon you and help you see how evil everything around you actually was that you didn't just jump on social media and complain about it you let it simmer and settle into your spirit and allow God to show you what he may want you to do about it when is the last time that you wept, mourned for somebody else's sin? I don't mean you just went to God and purged your own out again before you go back and binge on the same. I mean, you carried the weight of heaven in your heart. 
for what God willed. Verses for days. He said, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And if you want to read his prayer, I believe there's a lot to be gleaned from it. But I'm going to give you some out of the worship center, feed yourself work to do today. You can read verse 5 and see his prayer. If you will, write this down, number one. In order to answer the call of God, in order to achieve the will of God, with individuals learning how to obey the burden. Beyond a pastor, beyond a staff, beyond the already leaders in the body of Christ, um, uh, beyond the bishops, beyond the superintendents, beyond, beyond the political leaders, I believe that God in these days wants to raise up individuals who learn how to obey his burden. I, I could have used the word surrender, but it didn't... Uh, flow from a literary standpoint as well as obey did and I don't think I think that the idea of surrender means that I sit down on the floor and I cry and I open my hands and I hope that something happens but to obey is to put my hand to the plow put my prayer into practice and put my anointing into action so to obey the burden that is by the way what people mean when they say the call of God I sensed the call of God it's you sensed that the Holy Spirit was giving you a burden for something that you were not currently doing and so I prophesy into people sitting across this room, watching online live and later, I believe that we need to begin to operate in the obedience of the burden for our spouse over ourselves, to operate in obedience for the burden of our marriage, for the burden of, uh, dare I say, your employer, Jesus help them. I believe that we need to obey the burden for our political leaders and certainly our civil leaders and even more our spiritual leaders. I believe that we need to obey the burden, the burden that God lays on our heart for people that he puts in our path because you can lay down in the altar of a sanctuary, but can you stand up and speak to a person in society i believe that we need to obey the burden for our children and our children's children i believe that we need to obey the burden for the children of people that do not have a parental figure to look to that will guide them and lead them in the right direction i believe there are spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers in this house that will have to get over their own desires so that they can become the parents and the leadership and fulfill the capacity of God in somebody else's life that doesn't have what their family does have. We need to obey the burden for our soul. Personally, our own soul and adhere to the voice of God. Nehemiah obeyed the burden. Watch this, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. You're welcome. I just did a whole chapter in 10 minutes. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year 
of King Artaxerxes. Same year of the king. Hang on, hang on, watch this. Same year of the king. Different calendar for the kingdom. It was the same year, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. But it was the new year for the kingdom of God. Four months later, the month of Kislev, four months later, the month of Nisan, which is, if I'm not mistaken, the beginning of the Jewish new year. What the world calls the same year. God's not waiting until next year. God's getting ready to do something in the same year according to, according to his calendar that the world doesn't even know needs to be done according to their calendar. Nehemiah waited for four months. And when one was before him, before him, the king, I took up the wine... I did my job as the cupbearer, which was to make sure Nehemiah would make sure that the food and the drink that were going to the king were not poisonous. So Nehemiah, the cupbearer, not a priest, not a pastor, not an official, and not a leader. Nehemiah, hear me, listen to this. Nehemiah, the cupbearer, was a filter for the world. I believe that Jesus wants to raise up some filters for the world around them, some filters for their homes, some filters for their workplace, some filters of morality and filters of standards, some people that would be able to say, hey, this is good for you and this is not good for you, and I'm not going to fall back into it just because I happen to be in the atmosphere. I'm going to be the filter that stands in any atmosphere. Nehemiah filtered to make sure that it was okay for his authority. And that day, as he filtered the food and the drink, the wine, the Bible says, I had not been sad in front of the king. I'd, I'd put my facade on. I'd, I'd put my face on. I, I, maybe sometimes he, he'd have to put his faith on and not let other people see. Do you know just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean that you have to show everybody how you feel? Your feelings shouldn't affect your faith. Hear me. Your bad day shouldn't affect your influence. You can be around and attacked by evil and still be anointed for somebody else that doesn't even know what you've been through as long as you put your faith on. Nehemiah had his faith on. Presence of the earthly king. Verse 2, today was different. The king said to me, why is your face sad? This wasn't an accident. Nehemiah allowed this. Because there are times in our lives where we do have to be open and we do have to be honest and we've got to stop hiding what God wants to expose. 
we've got to stop trying to cover what God wants to reveal. Get out from behind the bush, Adam. Your father's calling you. He's not, oh, I'm stealing it from Pastor Choco. He's not calling the woman to stand up and answer his voice. He's calling you, boy, to get out from underneath your covering and answer the call that God has been giving you. She'll follow you. But it's not her fault that you were standing right there and didn't do anything about it. I'm not preaching a men's conference, so i got to move forward. Because, ladies, you don't need a man to be what the son of man has already come to be. Come on, somebody. His voice can be just as loud to you today as it was to him and to her on that day. i got to get through. Why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And Nehemiah obeyed the burden, but he was very much afraid. He was afraid. Why? Because you don't get to be sad in the presence of that king. There's protocol. You had to put your face on. And if the king didn't like the way that you were presenting yourself, then he could fire you <laughs> because he's your authority. So you don't get to go to work tomorrow <laughs> and act like you hadn't been in church today. Come on. When you stand before the king, you had to present yourself according to the protocol of the authority of which you're under. And Nehemiah, honor the authority until God say, hey, it's time today. Today's the day. Take the facade off. I want you to show him. But he was afraid. Why? Because to be fired by the king, it's not like you go find a new job. Okay? It means you don't have a head to think with <laughs> or a body to look with. He was going to kill him. He could have right there in that moment. Nehemiah responds, I said to the king, let the king live forever and please don't kill me. King, why should not my face be sad when the city? Governor, why should my face not be sad when the city? The place of my father's graves lies in ruins. That which is evil is called good and that which is good is called evil. And its gates have been destroyed by fire. Verse 4, the king said to me, what are you requesting? <laughs> what is this? So I prayed to the God of heaven. <laughs> now look, look, that doesn't mean that he, he like left the king's presence and went off and, and had another uh, prayer meeting. You know, there wasn't time for that. Because he had been praying and fasting and seeking the face of God. When is the last time that you sought the face of God for four minutes? When is the last time that you let the burden of God rest upon you for four days? When is the last time that you didn't need God to give you God stir in your spirit for four months? And then, when the opportunity opened up, you made sure, God, is this you? 
Boy, I hope this is you. If not, me and you about to see one another in person real soon. He said, Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven. Number two, write this down. Open the door. Paul said it this way, make the most of every opportunity. It doesn't mean that you have to go out and make opportunities. Now, the Holy Spirit may lead you to just ambush (laughs) at times. Most of the time, that's for him to teach you how to get out of your comfort zone more consistently. But you have to open the door of the opportunity that God puts in your path. A hundred years, the wall's been torn down. A hundred years, the altar needed to be rebuilt. A hundred years, the Torah needed to be read to the people of God. A hundred years, the word of God needed to be prophesied, proclaimed, and practiced in front of the people. And Nehemiah is the one that had to open the door. Cupbearer, ordinary guy, priests and prophets and pastors all over the place. Nobody's doing anything about it. Open the door. Ordinary people. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem and I was there for three days. I was there. He took time to examine. When's the last time you took time to examine? It was such a good book. (laughs) You know the last time I took time to examine was? When we were running 740 people in three services last February. And then the first week of March, we had a marriage conference. The second weekend of March, we were rolling. Even on uh, spring forward day when more people want to sleep in because they lost one hour of sleep. Apparently, one hour affects whether people want to serve God that day. Which is apparently statistically lowest attended day of the year. I bet y'all come back next week. (laughs) The next week we had to close the doors. Not because, hear me, listen to me, not because the governor told me to. Although I, I like to be honorable. But because God told me and our team, by team I mean staff, elders, and board. I wasn't making that decision by myself. Because there's wisdom in a multitude of counsel. God said, close the doors. It's what's best for your people. I said, God, there's no way that's what's best for our people. He says, what's best for your people? See, I thought, I thought that we were closing our doors because it was best to keep people safe from getting sick. No, no, no. God said it was best for your people to see that they were calling physically gathering on one day a week spiritual success so when I took that one thing that they were doing for me away they realized how weak they were I was showing you 35 year old man I was showing you that you don't get to just bring a bunch of people into a building lead them in a prayer of salvation and call them a disciple that there's a difference between salvation and discipleship. And you were actually really weak in the area that you were calling successful. So for two months, God took away the thing that we had been finding substance in. And we got to discover and examine where we really were as a church. You know what we found out? People were starving, and we weren't leading them very well. Obey the burden. Open the door. 
Verse 15 says, I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, the moral standard, the security of the city. I turned back and I entered by the valley gate, the place where sin and holiness could come in and out. And I returned, verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not told, watch this, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, or the officials, or the rest who were to do the work. Now, he is about to make a pivotal statement in leadership. Because he's not just going to point his finger and start telling everybody what to do. He's about to listen to God, implement a plan, and lead by example. Listen to God, implement a plan, and lead by example. There's a lesson in leadership right there that I don't have time to break down. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. How America, Louisiana, Mamu, Iota, Basil, Elton, Lawtel, and Eunice... You see the trouble that we're in, and we're complaining a lot about it. The walls of morality and security for the sake of the kingdom of God, they have been torn down. They've been torn down in our hearts. They've been torn down in our homes, and they've been torn down in our habitat. And we are exposed to the enemy unlike we've ever been exposed before because we're not building walls. Because we don't have boundaries and we don't have accountability. And we just assume that God's will is going to come to pass instead of, instead of operating in the anointing by which he calls. You see the trouble we are in. How America, Jerusalem, I'm sorry, lies in ruins with its gates burned. The place where sin can exit and holiness can enter. Come. Nehemiah calls, not a pastor, just a person, a cupbearer, who is willing to leave the comfort of the palace to go out and provide a covering for the people. Come, let us build the wall that we may no longer suffer the division of the undivided heart that Solomon refused to worship in because the sins of our forefathers, the complacency and the compromise of those who have come before us have led to the condemnation of where we are currently. But we don't have to stay that way. Let us, watch this, verse 18, I told them, the hand of God that had been upon me for good. Paul said, hold on to what is, test everything and hold on to what is good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. See, God will take the unlikely people. When you will open and obey the burden, open the door, make the most of the opportunity, God will take your enemies and turn them into your permission. He will take the, pe the people and the things that used to persecute and wanted to punish, and he will use those people to see his will, and those people will be the ones that have to grant you the permission to begin to operate again as a church. 
I told them of the hand of God that was upon me and how also the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. I'm not looking for anybody else to do for me what my God is able to use me to do. Let us rise up and build. So watch this. So they strengthened their hands. They started putting their prayer into practice. They put some action to their so-called anointing. Let us strengthen our hands for the good work. Number three, rise up. Rise up. Rise up in your soul today. Rise up and respond to the conviction of God today. Rise up on your campus tomorrow. Rise up in your workplace tomorrow. Rise up in your house this afternoon. Rise up for your spouse this afternoon. Rise up on behalf of your friends that aren't following Jesus. Rise up on behalf of your family that needs a leader to follow Jesus and lead by example. Rise up for good, for good. I asked this question. You don't have to bow your head yet because I want you to just read this and, and, and even want you to read it, maybe even whisper it out loud. Instead of your, I'm going to change this to my. I want you to read it as my. What is my burden today? What is my burden? God, ordinary people, not just pastors and prophets and priests and apostles, evangelists and teachers. No, no, no. Just people. When is the last time that you called your mayor and asked him what you could do for your city? See, most of the time people only call their mayor when they want something from him. Most of the time, people only call the chief when something's happening that they don't like. What's your burden? Is it his city? Is it your city? Most of the time, people only call the church when they need something. <laughs> they only call their youth pastor when that student is still acting like an idiot. Even though I sent him to your service Wednesday, we got one hour, parent. You got all week. It's not us that's going to make the difference. What's your burden? I know what my burden is. I've even been positioned for some reason. In my inadequacies, insufficiencies. I've been positioned to hear from God in the counsel of a multitude and receive his burden for this church in this community and by community I mean Eunice and a 25 mile radius I'm claiming it 
been claiming it for four and a half years. Why you think you drove so far today? I was praying for you four and a half years ago. This is God's country. This is God's house. But if you want to change a habitat, you got to start in your house. And if you want to start in your house, you've got to let him start in your heart. Obey the burden. Don't compromise again. If you walk out of here and compromise, this may be the time that you become calloused and the next generation becomes condemned. Don't compromise today. What's your burden? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I want to talk to the followers of Jesus. If you're confident of who you are in Christ, then just ask him, Lord, what's the next step? What's the next step? Pastor, I already went through next steps. No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit, what is the next step for you? Let him lay it on your heart and then just carry the weight. Let him stir in your spirit. Where are you not obeying that you're supposed to be obeying? Where are you not leading that you're supposed to be leading? Where are you not living by an example that you're supposed to be living by example? Where are you compromising that you're supposed to be obeying conviction? Come on, that's the place that the Holy Spirit is speaking to. What's your burden? If you're in the room right now and you're not confident of who you are in Christ because you haven't really been following him, here's how you know you were really uncomfortable with a lot of things that I said today. Not because I was being ugly, but because the Holy Spirit was using those words to convict your current direction. And he's right here saying, hey, turn to me. Surrender to me. Follow me. If that's you today and you're not confident of who you are in Christ, but you would like to be, I want to invite you right now to open your hands right where you are, whether you're in the house or watching online, live or later. Just open your hands. Position yourself in a posture of surrender, which is to let go. And now, right now, right where you are, begin to submit and surrender some of those things. You may whisper it in a confession. God already knows you may as well confess it. You may as well surrender it. He's waiting for you to cast it to him so that he can carry it for you because his burden is way lighter and his yoke is way easier than what you've been doing. So surrender. At the same time, this is a posture to receive. For God to replace your rebellion with revelation. For God to replace your sin with his sanctification and his spirit. So posture yourself. If that's you, open your hands right where you are. As an act of obedience, Lord, that's me. You know it's me. I'm here, right here. Church, I want to invite you to pray loud so that anybody that needs to make this confession, commit their life or recommit their life to Jesus today would be willing to pray out loud. Come on, let's pray it together. Jesus, forgive me for ignoring your burden. I've fallen. I've sinned. Sin separates me from you and your will for my life. Save me. Cleanse me. 
Help me to obey your burden right now. I believe you gave your life, you shed your blood, you paid for my sin when you died on the cross, but you were raised from the dead so I could be born again, made new like you, not a restart, but a fresh start. God, I believe you have a plan for my life. So may I open the door, obey the burden, rise up for the good that you have. May I follow you with all of my heart from this day forward. I surrender all in Jesus' name, amen. Come on, can you give God praise today?